This is Pop Culture Confidential, and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Welcome back to Pop Culture Confidential, everyone. Eric Anderson, Editor-in-Chief, I wrote Chef, but it's Chief (laughs) of Awards Watch, is here to discuss some of the latest. Tenet is back in theaters, well, in some territories. Mulan is out of theaters. Venice Film Fest is happening, Telluride is not. And what do we think the Oscar race will be? think it will be as steered by the festival season as most years, or is it a Netflix Oscar bonanza? Netflix, who's decided not to be at any of the festivals. There's an explosive antitrust case happening that I need you to fill us in on, Eric, and some exciting trailers. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's, there's a lot going on. There is. Film industry is so fucking bonkers that I'm so glad that TV is keeping me sane. I'm a the moment I'm watching Lovecraft Country on HBO, which is coming, and I think it's absolutely amazing. Have you seen any of that? I haven't. I actually, well, I didn't get the screener because I forgot to ask for it, uh, but I have someone that did, and so she wrote a review on it. So I'm looking forward to that. I think it's going to be the hit of the fall sci-fi with Jim Crow era racism in the States uh, mixed it. It's just very well done. I'm enjoying it like crazy. Yeah, it seems like it's going to kind of fill in the gap for for Watchmen in a lot of ways. Yeah, it is. And, and I'm so thrilled that these kind of, this kind of storytelling is coming now that's so powerful and just, and just really genre. I mean, I've missed this kind of sci-fi too. And, and something that I have always found really successful and compelling is when you have stories that you want to tell that are normally told in, you know, traditional dramatic ways that can feel like, uh, like, like misery porn. And that happens, that happens often with any type of race relation stories that are told in film or television. So when you remove the the subject from the traditional presentation of it and put it into something else like supernatural or satire like like get out was you get to look at it from a completely different perspective it's fresh it feels different everything can work on metaphorical levels and on actual levels and it just creates a entirely different uh, experience. Yeah, so I'm. I'm glad for the, for all of that. Yes, yes. I think you're going to like it. Well, we'll have to come back to talk about that when you've gotten a chance to see it. But tell me, we as we have always started these past few weeks. Um, yeah. What is the feeling that Tenant will not be premiering in uh, most territories stateside? In some, in September, if I understand correctly, but uh, will premiere in Europe on August 26th. You know, it's it's not an uncommon thing for this to happen. It's very big blockbuster movies many times in years past have started overseas a week or two ahead of their U.S. release. It's not, it isn't uncommon. Um, it feels uncommon because of the year that it is with covid but it's not a completely unusual thing. Yeah, and also it feels uh, because that's not the way they've been touting this premiere. 
I mean, they've mm-hmm. been basically saying that they were going to open cinemas in the states, and this was going to be the first. Every every time we've we've done this because now we have done this enough times that uh, they keep moving the dates and 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 pushing the goalposts down, and from from the very beginning, it's uh, my opinion and position hasn't changed. That I just felt that the amount of pressure for tenant to be this savior for moviegoers and for movie theaters was both really misguided and and arrogant i i thought it was a really really bad choice to try and 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 position it like that when you know other films and other studios were trying to look at things in a realistic way and you know being a little more thoughtful about it but this whole savior complex that that nolan took on or at least from appearances that he did i just think was a really big mistake what territories will it open around labor day in their september i mean what do you, you think mean is realistic the, in the u.s i mean oh i don't think it will at all in the entire no. u.s i no i don't I don't think there's going to be any open U.S. theaters this for the rest of the year, mm-hmm. at least. There'll be drive-in stuff, but this isn't going to go to drive-ins. Drive-ins are going to be like smaller movies and, and indies and things like that. I, I don't think there's going to be anything for the rest of the year. Yeah. I'm wondering what's going to happen in Europe. I mean, Spain, for example, is having a horrible resurgence of COVID. Um, and uh, and Antonio Banderas just got it. 60 years old today and has COVID. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering if they, if and that was one of the, I think Spain is on the list for the 26th of August opening. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what they're going to do with that. Are they waiting day to day or... or I, I imagine so, but I mean, the difficulty is that, you know, there's always deals and contracts in place and in order to change or break them, they'll have to renegotiate and everybody has to agree. And the same thing would have happened with Mulan too, uh, which I'm sure we'll get to in a minute is, is you know, the decision that, that they made and and what had to change to allow that to happen. So I... We're, we're already halfway through August and I don't, I don't understand the, the thought that anything can open almost anywhere unless you're like Taiwan or New Zealand. Well, we'll see what happens. <laughs> we'll have time to discuss it a couple more times. <laughs> but um, you mentioned Milan and that they did make the change. This is a $200 million live action blockbuster that was following in these, the heels of Tenant, moving up two weeks, moving up two weeks. And, and they decided to nix it from theaters. And it's now premiering on Disney Plus um, for $29.99 besides the monthly subscription price. Is this a revolution, the way, what they're doing with Milan? Is it an indicator of things to come post-pandemic? I think it absolutely is. And it's twofold with their decision to stop producing uh, 4K Blu-ray DVDs mm. uh, of all of the Fox titles that they took in. So there, is, there are shots being fired 
over the bow of every studio by Disney with this choice. And I think it's going to be hugely successful. We just saw how huge uh, the success was for Hamilton when the numbers for that came in. Because that was news just now before we got yeah. on this call that yep. the, the viewership for Hamilton on um, Disney Plus is way higher than in anything Netflix has had. That's a pretty big deal. It is a big deal. And Netflix has had now at the moment, sorry. Yeah. And with, with Disney Plus, they have, and I, I tweeted this last week, they have 60.5 million subscribers. Even if only a quarter of them bought the film, bought Mulan, that's $450 million right there. And more, more than a quarter of people that have Disney Plus are probably going to do that. So you're looking at six, seven, $800 million that's going to be made on this $200 million film. And we know that, you know, the post-production and marketing costs can double the cost, the, the budget price. So most of the time a movie of this level has to make like $500 million just to break even. Mm -hmm. But what we have with this situation is, and it all depends on, on how early they were again, able to get out of contracts. And if they had made the, the copies, the thousands of, of copies of the film available to theaters, the the reduction in the post production for for marketing is going to keep that profit level of this twenty nine ninety nine at like the highest point possible. So, if this is as big a success for them as I think it's going to be, then yeah they won't need they won't need theaters to sustain themselves we'll see what happens with with mulan we'll see how much they can bring in because if it's enough they will absolutely tout how much it is and i think it will if it is huge it will be an absolute seismic shift because it will it will tell all other studios that this is the way to go. And you, you're going to need to do a, a video on demand or have your own service uh, to, to house it, which is why, you know, something like Netflix or, or Disney Plus are so ahead of the game. They, they, were, they were already ahead of the game before the pandemic. And the pandemic really just exposed how far ahead they were. There's been some discussion that the twenty nine ninety nine plus the Disney subscription is so expensive. I, mm -hmm. I don't think so because um, in this case, as opposed to Trolls, which people rented for nineteen ninety nine and it disappeared after whatever it is forty eight hours, the Disney subscribers get to keep as long as mm -hmm. they subscribe to Disney, they keep mm -hmm. so the family can keep watching it again and again and again as kids do, and also taking a family of four to the movies is not going to be $29.99, that's for sure. Exactly. And when you're talking about a Disney property anyway, since the invention of VHS, this was already a part of, <laughs> of the, the contract that families had with Disney. You were going to buy the movie and the kids were going to wear it out. So this and is, the merchandise and everything that goes with it. There's like no price yeah. point for families with Disney. Ex exactly. And, but I mean, at the same time, they've, 
they're as huge as they obviously are. They've lost a lot from having their, their theme parks closed. So they were certainly looking for the avenue that was going to close that gap. And I, I don't want to say I think it's the right decision, but it is, it is financially the right decision to make. But, you know, I think what we're all going to be concerned about is what this looks like in the future for audiences across the U.S., or for other movies. Yeah, and international distributors and, and theaters are mm-hmm. really upset. I mean, this is a huge deal. I mean, the theaters yeah. that are open in other territories that suddenly lost Mulan is, of course, a huge, yes, a huge financial. So, you know, people are, of course, wondering what's going to happen with that. Which, again, those those contracts better be, like, airtight because if there's any room to to sue... I, I, I can see, you know, international uh, distribution having a, a real issue with Disney. But I'm pretty sure Disney's pretty good about that. <laughs> I think they can lawyer up, don't you? <laughs> I, I, think, I think they've got that. I'm, I'm not worried about Disney in that sense. What about festival season? Um, we haven't really talked about that the past few times we've talked about because everything has been so up in the air. But where have we landed? Is everyone postponing? What's happening? Yeah, this is, it was hard to talk about because a lot of the festivals were being kind of guarded about what they were going to do. And uh, Telluride did ultimately cancel. But there is a uh, Telluride, New York, Venice, and Toronto are all kind of working together in a way to support each other as much as they possibly can, which is good. Yes, that's very good. And there are some, you know, festivals that are still going on. Toronto is going to continue with an extremely limited lineup of only 50 films, but they're also doing a reduced amount of press access, which I feel is extremely counterintuitive um, when you could be opening it up since you don't have to worry about the physical geography of, of the amount of people. So that's been an, a little frustrating. I have my uh, writer submitted his accreditation last week and I hope he gets in. I think he will. He's a pretty consistent Toronto uh, critic. And, but if he doesn't, I will be, uh, <laughs> I will be, I'll be more than upset. Most of the festivals are doing some kind of, are, are not going on, but several of them are doing an online version. Um, do you think that works? I mean, isn't festivals about people who go meeting each other and, and you know, talking to talent? And I mean, yeah, that, that is a big part. And I think it's, um, I don't know if there's been enough time since this really started in, in March to be able to figure out how to manage a, a festival without the in-person element of it and red carpets and all that, because, you know, that's as, as much as we might, you know, want to say that you know, a, a red carpet premiere in Toronto or Venice doesn't, isn't a big deal. It is because there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people who are 
employed and live by uh, red carpet photographs. Mm -hmm. There are dozens of of people whose jobs depend on on festivals. Yeah, the and, cities themselves. And and then then of course the cities themselves who uh, have huge economic booms during this period, and now they they don't have that. But that's also kind of worldwide tourism, just in general, is is in the toilet. I, I don't know if if there's going to be very much actual success from the online versions of the festivals this year. We're also clearly seeing from the lineups that have been revealed that these are not these are not what the lineups would have looked like in a normal year. Yeah, if the listeners aren't that nerdy into festivals or knowledgeable <laughs> as you are, the festivals really indicate what award season will be. The big headliners for reference, like last year, Parasite came out of and was at Cannes and Joker mm -hmm. was at Venice. And this year, what you're saying is that those big movies that we will see then running is you're not seeing that happening. No, definitely not. Like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood was, was Cannes last year as well. And, and no, we're not going to see titles like that. But on the flip side of it, that's kind of a good thing because one of the great things about festivals has always been the ability for a smaller film to generate uh, attention and buzz and visibility. It's what festivals really were for. Yeah. How, how much visibility does Joker and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood need? because they're already massive tentpole studio films. So what, what's happening this year, I think, is, is a reset of what uh, festivals can do and what they kind of should be doing, because they've been co-opted. This happened in uh, Sundance, where the first you know, decade was like, it was all about the type of films that are at Sundance. And then it turned into the big money deals and bigger stars and bigger premieres. And that kind of then just went to all festivals. So every, every, every festival has, you know, it's big, massive star studded movies and the heads of the festivals are constantly fighting with each other every year about who gets what. <laughs> and, you know, again, just like with studios that doesn't benefit the viewer. It only benefits the people in charge. See, not everything is bad with the pandemic. Exactly. You know, in, in a lot of ways, I think there can be some, some resets that are healthy. If they, they take place, we'll see. But What are some of the... Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Well, I, I, I think I'm going to say just about what you were going to lead into about some of the movies. Yeah. What, it, what are they? What are the movies that you see that are buzzing around the festivals that are still semi-happening? Well, the really cool thing is that it is showing us the movies that were or are going to hit virtually every festival and, and be like the parasite of this year. Nomadland, Ammonite, and One Night in Miami are absolutely everywhere. These are small movies from small studios-ish. <laughs> Say a few words about, so One Night in Miami, I know is Regina King's movie. It is, it is an imagined conversation between Malcolm X and uh, Muhammad Ali when he was Cassius Clay and, and Sam Cooke in this hotel the night after uh, uh, Ali won this fight. And it's, it's based on a play. 
So it sounds super cool. It's Regina King's feature film directorial debut. I cannot I, wait for that. Yeah, I am like blowing. Oh my God, I'm so excited. And Amazon picked that up. And then we have Ammonite, which was going to premiere at Cannes. But it also was uh, hitting Telluride and Toronto. And that is Francis Lee, who directed God's Own Country. And it's another LGBTQ story with Kate Winslet and Saoirse Ronan. Lots of lesbian repression. <laughs> that's a good Oscar you know, that's, that's, stuff. <laughs> that's, that gets as oscar as it gets. Um, and then Nomadland from Chloe Zhao, who directed The Writer, and that stars Frances McDormand. And it is based on a novel of a woman who packs up uh, and starts living a nomadic lifestyle around the United States because her and her husband can't afford to live where they have lived their li in their t entire lives, which is a great American story for what's happening right now. And I also understand that Anthony Hopkins playing an, an Alzheimer's patient in The Father is an incredible performance and also something that's very buzzed about at the festivals that he may have some big Oscar chances. Yes, and that premiered at Sundance, which was really the last and only festival to have itself in, in its entirety. Uh, so it's the other ones that we have not seen yet. So those are these unknown entities, but... I always look to where a studio is going to position a film. And if they're going to have it in three, four, or five festivals for the year, that's, that's where they're going. So my, my attention goes right to them. So my, my attention is on Nomadland, Ammonite, The Father, One Night in Miami, much more than it is on Tenet or Dune or West Side Story. Those are the movies that are really up in the air for me because the other ones, the Nomadland and Ammonite are the ones that can afford to do video on demand and to have a, a broader access. So do you mean that West Side Story and Dune, they're not festival movies this year, but will, will, you mean they won't com be competing at the Oscars because they may not be out in theaters or? or? Well, that's, that's what I'm trying to wonder. That's what, that's what I'm trying to, fig trying to figure out because there, there are some, like West Side Story hasn't changed its date yet, but I imagine that it will. If, if, if my prediction comes true that, that, that theaters won't be open by Christmas. Short follow-up, if it would have been a normal non-pandemic year, would you have seen these movies, West Side Story, Dune, and so on, at the festivals? Dune, I, Dune, I think, could have been a festival movie, maybe. I think Dune could have played like Venice. If, if it had been finished in time, which I imagine without the pandemic, it would have been. So some of the bigger ones did sort of choose to not do the festivals this year. That's why these smaller ones are, you know, standing out. Mm -hmm. Venice is actually a festival that will be happening. It's, I guess, hopefully, I, depending, I mean, that's at least what they're saying. It <laughs> will know. be happening. I'm, I'm, I'm sure it'll be a more of a Italian affair. But the interesting thing there that's, they have an incredibly good female lineup, which historically has not been their forte at Venice Film Festival. You were mentioning Regina King and Chloe Zhao, Alice Rohrbach, Regia Coppola, Kate Blanches is heading up the jury. Yeah. I, I'm wondering if that it, it would have been this way 
if it was a regular year or if it happens to be. And I just hope that this continues and it's not just a blip. Yeah, I hope so too, because the the amount of female directors in the in-competition list for Venice is incredible. It's crazy. It's never been that way, right? I mean, I was- No, no. And it's coming after a year of, uh, of tremendous scrutiny about that too. Yeah, they've taken a lot of um, well-deserved heat <laughs> yes. over- it's it's a really good lineup. I I I would like to go. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good lineup. The one thing that makes me a bit sad is, of course, there won't be as much press as a normal year. Yes. I mean, since people ba- won't be there, <laughs> so I really hope that this means constant change and not just this year. But another interesting thing is Netflix. They chose a long time ago, made, they made the decision mm-hmm. not to go to any festivals. And they went to a lot of festivals last year and were, and you know, with their Oscar movies this year, they decided we're not doing it. We're not even taking the risk, but still, I just think they're going to be raking in the Oscar buzz. Don't you think? Absolutely. Which it was honestly a really big surprise when they chose to, to skip festivals. And I do think the reason that they did it was because they didn't think there were going to be any. And, and it just, you know, they already have their own uh, streaming. They're, they're not beholden to theaters. So they didn't really need it. But like we said before, festivals are really where, where you create buzz and attention and visibility. And there are plenty of people who don't know about tons of movies and, they get to know about them because of festivals, because they'll hear word of mouth or they'll read something uh, in a newspaper or on a website, and then it will be brought to their attention. And Netflix is, is a studio that's absolutely needed that. In some ways they needed it a little bit more because they were not a traditional studio. And yeah, last year they had all of their movies at multiple festivals. The year before that, Roma was at everything from Cannes all the way into almost AFI. Yeah, close. So they they have used festivals uh, very strategically and really intelligently. So the decision to not use them at all is a little bit of a surprise. This year they have Spike Lee, they have David Fincher's movie Mank about the co-author of Citizen Kane, Charlie mm-hmm. Kaufman's I'm Thinking About Ending Things. They have Aaron Sorkin's new movie mm-hmm. that everyone's buzzing about. I mean, basically they could just do the Oscars on their own. <laughs> you know, it's... I'm... And they, they, they get with the new Oscar rules that they don't have to have a theatrical release oh, um, yeah. unless there was one planned. I mean, they're ahead of everyone. Oh, extremely ahead. It's in, in every way. And even with the, the Oscars extending the eligibility period into 2021 for two months, which was really just to kind of make sure and get these big Hollywood movies a little bit of extra padding and extra time. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I still, think, I still think it could be just an absolute Netflix bonanza. It's going to be interesting Oscar race for all these these reasons, and I think, as you've said many times, um, there's going to this is going to change so many things even after this is over, where things have started going back to normal. I mean, all these rule changes and things. I think some things aren't going to go back to the way they were. Yes, there's a huge paramount antitrust case going on, which sounds 
very boring if you're not into that. But this is huge news um, in the industry. Talk about what what this is and why. So back in 1948, the U.S. Supreme Court decreed that movie studios could not be the producers and the distributors of their own work. Uh, so they they separated them. And so that's kind of how it's been really forever. And that's why you would see, like when DreamWorks first came out, they would always have to couple with an existing studio like like Paramount or whatever. Mm-hmm. And, and that they would be their distributors. So that changed just a few weeks ago. I guess it was like two weeks ago. And so let me read the quote really quick from... U.S. District Court Judge Annalisa Torres, given this change in marketplace, the court finds that it's unlikely that the remaining defendants would collude to once again limit their film distribution to a select group of theaters in the absence of the decrees and finds, therefore, that termination is in the public interest. So I think the initial like concern about this would be that movie studios like Disney or Warner Brothers or whatever would just start buying up theater chains like AMC or Regal or Cinemark and then monopolizing the the screens. So you'd have, you know, say you had an AMC with with 20 screens on it and 15 of them were Disney movies and then the others, you know, would get to to be Universal and Warner Brothers or whatever it is. So no small movies will get a screen is what we're, there's no place for anyone else. It would be extremely, extremely, extremely difficult. Yes. And there's, it doesn't mean that that's going to happen, but that was the intent of this. And I think that the timing of it is so funny. And again, I mean, everything, the timing of everything because of the pandemic is just so wild because it might be, it might mean nothing because what are what are theaters even going to be soon and even if a studio wanted to buy a a dying chain because you know all of these these huge chains are losing so much money just hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars as the removal of the need for theatrical release happens then you know a like this doesn't seem that impactful because there's so many other platforms and ways to watch a movie now this this was you know 1948 this was the right <laughs> this is how you watch a movie and the only and the only way to watch it uh so it it was a very dated law compared to how you know things are now so even though it seems at first like it's really dramatic i don't think it's really going to be that big of a deal mm-hmm. It's like everything that was going to happen is just like we've pushed a really fast forward mm-hmm. and seeing it happen because of the pandemic, which may have happened or was going that direction anyway. Mm-hmm. So things are looking strange. We still believe in good movies. Have you seen anything or any trailers or anything coming up that you're really excited about? Well, I mean, I'm definitely excited for I'm thinking of ending things. I thought that looked really good. That's the Charlie Kaufman. Yeah, that's the Charlie Kaufman. That that first look at the trial of the Chicago Seven looked really good. And I think, you know, we'll be seeing a trailer for that very soon. And then 
announcements for other Netflix stuff very soon within prob probably September. And I, th I think what's happening too is a lot of places are kind of holding out to see how, how Venice and Toronto work out and, and then we'll make some decisions like by the end of September. And then we'll, then we'll see a lot more, uh, you know, trailers and, 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 and dates and stuff, because there are some things that have been completely pulled off the schedule. Like uh, the Wes Anderson is just gone from the schedule now. So they have no date at all for that? They don't, but my prediction is that it will debut at Berlin next year, which is where Wes Anderson movies like to debut anyway. And because of the, uh, the extended eligibility for the Oscars, that would still fall under this uh, qualification. Oh, right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's, it's weird because we're going to have two Sundance Film Festivals in, in the same eligibility period. And then to Berlin in the same eligibility period. That's going to be interesting. But I just have to mention one trailer that came out that really just made my heart stop. And that's Judas and the Black Messiah. Yes. Tell us about that movie. When is it coming? And, and please, everyone, go watch that trailer before, after you've heard this. <laughs> yeah, it is one of the most like thrilling trailers. And it was, yeah. I was, I was really excited because we didn't know what the status of the film was. It didn't even have a title. And then I think it was two weeks ago, they released the, the title of the, of the film because it was just the untitled Fred Hampton project at that point. So that told us, okay, it's, it's coming. It's coming soon. And it's, it's from Warner Brothers. They very clearly state in there just like they did with uh, Tenant that it's only going to be in theaters. They're really sticking to their guns about that. There isn't a release date yet, but I mean, this, this would be pretty traditionally uh, an end of the year movie. Tell, tell the listeners what it's about. Well, it's Daniel Kaluuya. Kaluuya, sorry. Kaluuya. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Lakeith Stanfield. And it's the story of Fred Hampton, who was the chairman of the Black Panther Party in Illinois. And true story. And uh, the relationship he had with an FBI informant who betrayed him. So it's, um, it also has Ashton Sanders and Algie Smith, uh, Leroy Howley, Howry. Um, I'm, oh, and Jesse Plemons too. Jesse Plemons, who's also in the Kaufman movie. Yeah, Jesse Plemons is, is, is having a pretty good time right now. <laughs> uh, but it just, it looks really, it looks exciting. It's visually, visually really. Um, and just, we're seeing so many tremendous black stories come out this year and of all years for it to happen as, as we, cause the pandemic is not the only thing that happened this year. The absolute explosion of the black lives matter movement uh, as a result of George Floyd and everybody before and after him has absolutely 
opened eyes of people that had not been paying attention before. And we are getting incredible black stories. We just saw with the Emmy nominations last month, uh, a record number of black acting nominees, almost 35% of the acting nominees are black. That is just beyond record breaking for the Television Academy. So we are seeing a huge cultural shift, uh, certainly the biggest since the 60s and the, the Civil Rights Act. And we started the show talking about Lovecraft Country, which is also yeah. incredibly good. So, I mean, there are a lot of good things happening in this very weird year and lots of good things to look forward to. Yes. And I may see Tenet before you do. I think that's probably the case. <laughs> yeah. if, if you do, I'm going to have to be like, Christina, I'll, you, can, you can review it for me. <laughs> I, I, I will. Don't worry. I Somehow it's going to be a release too, just to finally see it. You know, that's really going to be a big, a big part of it. I, I almost feel bad for it because, I mean, it's going to be hard not to be let down unless it's just like an otherworldly masterpiece. I have great expectations. Yeah, I do too. Uh, Eric, thank you so much. It's always so interesting and fun to catch up, especially this year when, when things are just moving at a pace that you know, every day is something new happening and changing. I know we could do this every two days and have new information. Thank you so much. And, and um, we'll talk again. All right. Thank you. Hello, and welcome to Guilty Greenie. I feel like we should start off this show by saying it's nearly impossible to be 100% sustainable given the current world we live in. How do you eat an elephant? One bite at a time. Not a great analogy for a vegetarian, but you know. <laughs> We're talking uh, about sustainability, maybe not the best analogy. <laughs> Don't eat the elephant is the first rule of the guilty green. There's your first challenge of the week. <laughs> Avoid <laughs> elephants. What they used to call frugal is now considered sustainable. It's such an aha moment. Frugal to sustainable. You can save money and help the planet. That's going to be our new tagline for sure. Yeah, tag. <laughs> You can find Guilty Greenie on Apple Podcasts or whichever podcast platform you prefer. And join us in tackling the Guilty Greenie challenges. Until then, stay curiously green. <laughs>